It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. Welcome to the CapEx podcast from the Margaret Thatcher Conference on Security. I'm here with Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, and an international religious leader, philosopher, award-winning author, and respected moral voice, according to his own <laughs> website. <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly disagree with that, could I? Um, but it's very kind of you, and good to be here, and uh, part of a very important conversation. So the event... The panel you've just been speaking on, it was about Western values and and what they mean. And I was struck by something you said, um, which is that you felt that in America, the American story had broken down, that um, if you read books like by people like Charles Murray or Robert Putnam, you you know, that Heart, sort of, uh, half the population aren't really buying into the, the story that's been told them about if you work hard, if you succeed, you can, mm. you can get on and have a good life. I mean, would you say that the same applies here in Britain? Well, it's, it's particularly striking in the States because of, the, of how the country began. It began with Puritans. It began essentially with Calvinists who were leaving Europe in, in search of religious freedom. And they were very, very entrenched with, they lived with the biblical story, Uh, essentially a story of uh, exodus and escape from tyranny to freedom. And it became the American story. So American identity had a great deal to do with telling a story. I'm not sure the British identity was constructed on quite those lines. And that story had enormous power because it meant that the Irish and the Italians and the Jews and all the subsequent waves of immigrants were inducted into that story. It was told to them at school. Um, It was inscribed in the great monuments. I pointed out once that if you go to Washington and look at the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial or the Martin Luther King Memorial, they have screeds of text in the case of Lincoln, the second inaugural in the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King, more than a dozen quotes from his speeches. Whereas if you go to Parliament Square and look at the British monuments, you will see that David Lloyd George gets three words, David Lloyd and George. Nelson Mandela gets two, Churchill gets only one. 
So in America, monuments are things you read rather than in Britain. So, um, and of course, the Vietnam War Memorial would be another example. Absolutely. And so there was an American story. So when I read um, in 2012 Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, and 2015 Robert Putnam's book, Our Kids, saying that for a good half of America, that dream was no longer there. And that dream said equality of opportunity, we all uh, created equal, and therefore, by hard work and determination, there is nothing we cannot achieve personally and for our families. When half of America could no longer relate to that, that was serious, because the most obvious thing that hits you in America is how rapidly everyone buys into that story. You know, the, the taxi drivers in America may... may speak in very broken English, but they surely to goodness know the American story. So when I read that in America, I realized that was a problem, given the context and content of American political culture. In Britain, we don't have a story. We don't have a constitution. We don't have, you know, we, uh, we, uh, somebody, Peter Hennessy, once said that the British constitution is whatever they cabinet secretary and the Queen's secretary <laughs> jot on the back of an envelope. So um, in England, um, a great teacher of mine, Roger Scruton, wrote a book called England, an Elegy, in which he said England is a home. And in a home, things are there because they're there. So I realized that England has a slightly different approach to these things. And I sat and discussed that a lot with... Um, two prime ministers in particular who were concerned about it. That was John Major and Gordon Brown. Both of them wanted to know how to give expression to what makes England, England. Now, and, and Britain, Britain. And it? Britain, Britain. And John Major was struck by those great speeches made in, I think, 1931 by Baldwin. You know, those very evocative things about an English landscape and the, the things that made England feel like home. And he did a speech along those lines, very Baldwin-esque, about nuns cycling through yes, the Yes, although, um, by coincidence, uh, David Willits, who we mm -hmm. had as our guest on this mm -hmm. podcast recently, was mm -hmm. talking about how that was an echo of Orwell, who was trying to explain how you can, you can disagree with the, po the, the politics of a country, but still, yeah, yeah. But still love it. Yeah, yeah. Or Orwell, in the 40s, wrote that kind of essay. It was Baldwin who, who uh, John Major was thinking about. But yes, Orwell wrote something very similar. Um, with Gordon Brown, and, and of course, people made fun of it, because uh, in England, um, laughing at yourself is, is a kind of patriotism, really. Uh, Gordon Brown did, took a completely different tack. He wanted to know what are British values, fair play and this kind of thing. And, and I had to remind him that actually you can't build an identity around values because values are universal and identities are particular. So he had a lot of problems with that. Both of them had a lot of problems. But one of the things you've been talking about is that we all have a lot of problems with this. So you refer to the fact that um, you know, on the gravestone of, uh, mm. of Jewish immigrants mm. to the UK would be emblazoned, you know, um, a proud Englishman and a proud Jew, or mm. a proud Jew and a proud, mm. proud Englishman. And 
you said something which struck me. Um, I can tell you what it is to be a proud Jew, mm. but I can't tell you what it is to be a proud Englishman. Yeah, unless um, it's Andy Murray, Win oh, proud Brit, <laughs> Andy Murray winning at Wimbledon or the English football team doing quite well, which is, you know, um, one of those rare phenomena of nature like total eclipses and things. Um, but, you know, outside, outside the sports arena, it's quite difficult to, to, to identify. And I think that's, that's a weakness. England could rely on this inherited identity that was part Shakespeare, part Milton, part school and part sport and all these things. But England developed this kind of, what, what does, uh, is it Robin Lane Fox or somebody who calls the English habit of one-downmanship, you know, of sort of being embarrassed about the British past, which is colonial and imperialist and so on. Although the, the, the one thing we're not embarrassed about uh, is World War II, which has perhaps inflected some of our relationship with Europe uh, mm. over, the, over recent years. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we were always half-hearted about Europe. And maybe Europe was, to some extent, half-hearted about Europe because nobody ever even attempted to uh, work out what a European identity might be. But one component of the European identity, and sorry, to, this is again something you were talking about earlier, is the, the, this, this idea of rights and the relationship with the state, which is very much based on the Napoleonic code, the sort of French, mm. French model. And what you were saying is that you feel that this has been a mistake that the the the, 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 the even within in britain the elite here has bought into this sort of french version of rights and and duties and privileges and has left mm. sort of left that kind of that older english mm. anglo anglo american uh, attitude behind it one of, one of the things that uh, i i mentioned that the anglo american one was based really on on religious values and a, mm. an attempt to create societies in which different kinds of Christians and eventually non-Christians could live together at peace. Um, but other than that, and over and above that, there was this huge body of voluntary associations. The charities, the local neighborhood groups, the, the Labour Party was built on, you know, f f friendly societies and trade unions and so on. Um, there, were, there was a huge network of those bodies between the individual and the state. And uh, this is what struck Alexis de Tocqueville when he went to America. He said, you know, on the slightest pretext in America, people form committees about things. You name a problem, Americans put together a committee. He called that the art of association. And he rightly said, and again his phrase, that that constituted the apprenticeship of liberty. Which is why the Putnam findings you presumably found so alarming, which is that people, because of television um, in, mm. uh, when he wrote it, where he said, you know, we're effectively splitting apart, that people were not coming together yeah. to form He gave it a name. He called it bowling alone. Um, and he said more Americans than ever are joining temp, uh, doing ten-pin bowling, but fewer than ever are joining ten-pin bowling clubs and leagues. So um, in, in 1996, he gave this the phrase bowling alone. And it, it, technically, he called it a loss of social capital. Now, Britain and America had this huge reservoir of social capital, and he saw that that was really 
what safeguarded democracy in both countries. Because he noted in both countries, well, he noted especially in America, a phenomenon which he had never encountered before, and he had to invent a new word to cover it. And the word he invented was individualism. Now, if, you, if anyone were to look at the contemporary West and say, what's its most striking feature? The answer is individualism. Ours is the most individualistic society in all of history. But America is the most individualistic. I'm intrigued that you kind of identify it as, yeah. as, as communal. I mean, I, I've done some work on um, scientific studies, and yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the value. One of the problems they have with um, the well, with the entire corpus of social mm. psychology is it turns out that what they've been testing are a very weird subsection of humanity which is yes. college educated individualistic yeah. Americans who, it's called, who turn out to have nothing in common with the rest of us exactly they're, they're, they're called weird western industrialized educated um, rich and democratic rich and democratic exactly and Jonathan Haidt is the guy in the righteous mind who's pointed out that America are very good on two values not doing harm to others and fairness but are almost tone deaf to three other values, which are respect, loyalty, and reverence. And the end result is that Americans find it quite difficult to understand people who are not American. But presumably quite a lot of the, the stuff you're talking about, as you yourself said, comes from, the, comes from faith and comes from the sort of, the, the sort of if not the disappearance of faith, then certainly it's, it's, it's exclusion from... Yeah, well, what Robert Putnam found, and this was another book of his called American Grace, is that social capital is alive and well in America and mitigates individualism, but it's mainly found in religious congregations. And he says clearly, and he's done the research on this, and he tells me that he's done the same research in Britain with the same findings, is that what makes the difference is actually belonging to a church or a synagogue and going regularly. It doesn't matter what you believe, you can be a total atheist, but if you go to church regularly, you will develop that social capital. You will help people out if they need a job or somebody's homeless or somebody needs a loan. Um, they'll just get involved. And so he finds social capital being kept alive in religious congregations. The real question is, in a, a very secular public, as the coastal elites are in America and as the whole of Britain is almost, can you replicate that without religious congregations and I don't know it's an open question so I was, in, I was interested you say that because when we were talking to Frank Field in part of this uh, this series he said that he'd been struck by the fact that despite the, the sort of winnowing in numbers of the Church of England the Church of England is sort of doing more good proportionately at a, in a constituency level than than it ever has before he, he's been struck by you know he has hordes of momentum activists in his country which in his country in his constituency who vote enormous efforts to getting rid of Frank Field but would never think of helping out at food banks yeah it's in the, you know the, the, the sort of the, the agencies of communal yeah. uh, you know communal welfare are often centered around the churches this was the thing, and actually it was lovely to see them working together across the parties. There was Frank Field in Labour, there was Ian Duncan Smith in the Conservative Party, and there was David Alton for the Lib Dems. And all three of them had this very strong sense of active citizenship, which was based really on, on houses worship, Church of England, and so on. 
And they're absolutely right. That remains now one of the great centers. Um, Frank Prochaska is a writer who did actually point out that from the Victorian age onwards, the royal family also played a very big part in lending their patronage to charities. So, for instance, the Prince's Trust and a lot of what Prince but the, Charles the, 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 the Christmas appeals in the, uh, in the, I think it was the 1900s, when yeah. the... Which is, I knew everyone took their lead from the from the Queen. Yeah, and actually, actually, the Aberfan disaster, I think, was mm-hmm. again that was a yeah, yeah. So the royals, the Church of England, and the royal family are the two great sources of that, and they remain so. I mean, in terms of your own career, do you find mm-hmm. it sort of ironic sometimes that you are you've sort of been co-opted as a as a spokesman for for all faiths? I mean, having despite having been a sort of former chief rabbi, you're sort of you know clearly you know respected and admired and called upon by people of you know from very from very different traditions well you know it's an interesting story uh, in america they theorize about this and of course the most influential political philosopher uh, <clears throat> in the last generation was john rawls and john rawls developed this idea that he called public reason which had to be a secular language so that it wouldn't exclude anyone. Now, the weird thing is that in Britain, we have something called the BBC. Within the BBC, we have a news program called the Today Program. And within the Today Program, there's this very unusual thing called Fought for the Day, which is done by Jews, Christians, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, and all the rest. And when I was asked to do it, and I started long before I was chief rabbi, I suddenly faced face this problem. What is it to speak as a Jew to a public 99.5% of whom are not Jewish? I tried to find a precedent for this, and the only one I could find was the prophet Jonah, who was sent to the people of Nineveh, and of course he tried to run away. So it's a very unusual thing. So doing thought for the day as a Jew speaking to a non-Jewish audience forced me to develop a language that was very inclusive, not only of people of faith, but of people of no faith whatsoever. But you're always con- conscious of the need to speak beyond your own community. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, because um, because um, Britain is, or should be, and I spoke about this during my wreath lectures in 1990, a community of communities. So there is what I call our second language of identity, I as a Jew, or somebody else as a Hindu or a Sikh or something, and the first language of citizenship. So in a diverse society like Britain, you have to be bilingual. There's a language you use for fellow believers, but there's also a language you use to fellow citizens. And you have to develop that language, otherwise you find yourself constructing a kind of um, mental ghetto. And so, and so Thought for the Day was your, your entree into uh, respectable opinion? It was, it was my apprenticeship in learning to speak a new kind of language. And I think the BBC deserves enormous credit for being, in, in a, almost an accidental way, one of the main shapers of a diverse yet highly tolerant Britain. Well, you say diversity at highly tolerant. I mean, obviously, one of the more alarming developments over the recent years has been that we're becoming a much, seem to be becoming a much more intolerant society. Yeah, that's and, true. And it's especially in terms of uh, in terms of well, anti-Semitism rearing its head again, and um, you know, within the within the Labour Party in particular. 
Britain today is a less tolerant society than the one, for instance, I went to university in. Let's take something that's much less contentious, atheism. Today's atheists are quite militant. But my doctoral supervisor, the late Sir Bernard Williams, was a profoundly committed atheist who never, ever did anything less than respect my faith. Of course, he challenged it. Be lucid, be coherent, be compelling. Um, but he never rubbished it. So um, what I learned at university was that university is a place where we give a respectful hearing to views profoundly different from our own. Now what's happened at universities is political correctness, inverted commas, safe spaces, inverted commas, what's it called, uh, advanced? No platforming. What's it called, advanced signaling, you know, the, the, this phrase, a warning signal the, the, or whatever they call it. Yes, when you, uh, yes, when you. Anyway, certain voices are excluded on the grounds that they may upset somebody. Now, for me, a safe space is a place where I can listen to people whose views are completely opposed to mine without feeling diminished or threatened. So I think this concept of safe spaces is actually a contradiction in terms. And I to that is this, this idea of cultural appropriation, that you shouldn't be able to speak about the Jewish experience unless you are a Jew. You shouldn't be able to speak about the black experience or write, about, you know, write a, a novel in which a character has yeah. a, a view different from you yeah. know, a perspective. It's of not course, yours. and obviously, you know, some of the more perceptive things about Jews and Judaism, some of the most perceptive things about Jews and Judaism were said by non-Jews. I mean, of all the books on Judaism that I've learned from, I doubt whether Many of them have I learned more than from um, Paul Johnson's A History of the Jews, which is a book written by a Catholic. Indeed, uh, Thomas Cahill, who is another Catholic historian, wrote a book called The Gifts of the Jews, which I found immensely enlightening. I mean, you have to listen to a multiplicity of voices now and, and, and what a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu has to say about Judaism is something I, I have to hear and I may well learn from. I may feel enlarged by. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, do you feel that because within the Jewish community in the UK, there's a sort of different, there's an interesting split. There are the sort of there are cosmopolitan Jews, as it were, but then but there are also the people who who in the you know you, you, if you go into certain parts of Hampstead, say you'll you know you'll see people who who have sort of made made that decision the the, the Benedict option. I think the, the Catholics are now calling it to kind of cut to create their own society sort of in parallel with. With, uh, with with the mainstream, and in fact, if you go to, if you go to Israel, it's a, it's an even more pronounced pronounced phenomenon. Sure, and um, you know, it was an extraordinary thing for me personally. This Rodrigo has written this book called The Benedict Option, by which he is referring to the closing two pages of one of the great books of our time, Alastair MacIntyre's After Virtue. And Alastair MacIntyre, as a as a ex Marxist, now I think Catholic. Um, made the case, well, he said, um, it's, the barbari- it's not that the barbarians are at the gates, it's that the barbarians have been ruling us for some time. And his argument in that book, published in 1981, was that, you know, we have to turn inward, like St. Benedict did, and create monasteries, create secluded, enclosed, inward-looking communities. Safe spaces. Safe spaces, indeed. Now, I remember, you know, I used to discuss this kind of thing with, with various prime ministers, and I remember sitting with Tony Blair in around 2004 and looking at how the Jewish community had got a lot stronger because we had have now a lot more Jewish day schools than we used to have. And I said, you know, prime minister, there's, this is wonderful news for us. We're much stronger than they, we were a generation ago, but I see a danger, and that danger is we're turning inward. And I see all of the faith communities turning inward right now. And I suppose Brexit was a national moment of turning inward. And I said, I was bothered about that. And I actually took it on board, and I, I wrote a book called To Heal the Fractured World, where I deliberately set out to turn our Jewish community outward and say, yes, the fact that you go to a Jewish day school means that you will know a lot more about your Jewish heritage, but I want you to take that heritage and turn you into active citizens who are engaged with the welfare of people beyond the boundaries of community. So I saw that quite a long while ago, and I saw it as a danger, and I did what I think I could do as leader of, as a religious leader of the Jewish community, and the community did respond to that. So I think, and of course the C of E has always turned outward. Um, I think you, you're seeing this inward turn today amongst Catholics in America. And they are saying, and it's uh, Rodriguez only one. I mean, there are two others who've, Charles Chaput has written at the same time, a book called Stranger in a Strange Land, and expressing that same feeling that America is no longer a country whose ethos I, as a Catholic, can identify with. So I think 
Catholicism now also needs people who turn it outward because this inward turn is not good for national cohesiveness um, and and social solidarity. In, in a way, it actually refers back to what you were talking about about people not buying into the national story. Just yeah. we, we we're used to thinking of that that in terms of you know the um, the sort of deaths of despair. You know, mm. um, people who, who you know who are left out of the economy. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is that there's, a, there's also an element of people who feel that they're left out of the the sort of who feel alienated by the prevailing social and moral values of mm. and and that you see that most clearly among Muslims. But but don't let us think it's only a problem about Islam. I think we forget that back in 1899, a French sociologist, completely secular guy, but his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all rabbis. His name was Emil Durkheim. Durkheim wrote a book called Suicide, in which he made the radical claim that any society suffering anomie, that is a lack of agreed moral values, you will see the suicide rate go up. Now, I don't think Emil Durkheim could have foreseen suicide taking the form of suicide bombers, but it follows from his theory. So if you lack an agreed moral code within a society, you're going to get all sorts of fringe phenomena that are not going to be good news. And he saw that a long time ago. So what would your prescription be for, for fixing this? If you were appointed by the new prime minister as you know, secretary of state for healing a divided nation? Oh, I would certainly. The first thing I would do is re-empower local communities. I would say, you know, re, you know, just... I'll tell you bluntly what I did propose, and we never got there for various reasons. I said to Rome Williams after, you know, we could see all sorts of ethnic and religious tensions in Birmingham and Bradford and other Midlands towns beginning with B. I said, Rowan, why don't we, you and I and and Vincent Nichols and uh, a Muslim and a Sikh and a Hindu go out on the streets of Birmingham and go and actually visit community groups that are bringing people together? I said, you know, I... We know that in a media-driven world, the hardest thing to do is to make the good news news. But I think if the chief rabbi and the Archbishop of Canterbury and an imam and a head of the Catholic Church were to go out into the streets of Bradford and Birmingham and things, we could actually make a difference. We could highlight local community activists who are doing this. And I, I really would um, decentralize. I mean, that's the, that was the strength of America. I remember sitting once with the, the senior group I have ever sat with uh, at a moment when there was a feeling in the early 90s that the whole establishment was collapsing. And about eight of us sat together with the agenda, how do we save the establishment? And one of them was the American ambassador at the time, a very bright man called Ray Seitz who looked at us, we were sitting in St. James's in a, in a restaurant, and he said, do you realize that every single important person in Britain is at this moment having lunch within one mile of where we sit? He said, that could never happen in America. So I would decentralize, I would empower the neighborhoods, I would get the local religious groups to lead in conjunction with the charity groups and the citizenship associations and empower the localities. 
But isn't there a? I mean, I, I, I agree with. I mean, in fact, one of my first jobs in politics was as a, working for a thing called Direct Democracy, which was about mm. trying to look mm. decentralised power. Mm. But isn't there a sense that you're sort of swimming against the tide? That the, the you know the story of the last thirty years in the West has been this incredible su successful attempt to sort of rid ourselves of anything which holds us back from fulfilling our immediate impulses. Um, and technology has obviously played played quite a key role in this. And you know. Do, do, and, and the reason, and the reason that we don't all get involved, you know, the reason that we do, we we don't get involved in our communities is just because we feel we don't have enough time. We feel kind of rushed off our feet that there, you know, that there aren't enough hours in the day. I'll tell you what I see. I see a synagogue in Golders Green, of which I used to be the rabbi many decades ago. I see it's done something, and and it was dying on its feet. It was it was you know. I once said when I. When I came here, the average age was 78, and after only four years, the average age is now 82. <laughs> so, you know, it was an, an old age sort of community. Eventually, um, how many years ago? Three or four years ago, I think, four years ago, they took the outbuildings, they knocked them down and made a primary school. And now I see the five-year-old kids bringing their parents to the synagogue. I'm not saying they all spend their time deep in prayer. They spend most of their time looking after their kids in the children's service. But they are now members of a community. Now, what, one thing that the social networking software does is it immensely thickens the bonds of community. You know, the first thing you'll do is ask on the synagogue mailing list, does anyone know a good plumber? <laughs> or does anyone have a, to spare some garden furniture or something or other? So that technology can diffuse so, community yeah. or it can strengthen community. So in fact, the, the, and the, the counter to Putnam, which I, I didn't mention earlier, is that um, if you actually look at membership of individual groups, mm -hmm. it, it seems to be going up because, yeah. because email allows people yeah. to, knit, to, you know, to strengthen bonds formed yeah, offline. Yeah. And one, one thing that's really fascinating, and this is coming from, believe it or not, the Bay Area in San Francisco and other Silicon Valley type places, is that they are finally waking up to the fact that the late Steve Jobs refused to let his kids have an iPad. What they are discovering is that smartphones are destroying their kids' capacity for sustained attention. They are robbing them of social skills. They can't even make decent eye contact. At, at family meals, they're sitting with their smartphones under the table texting their friends. And uh, what they're doing, one family after another, is saying, we are going to have a screen-free day. They have reinvented the Sabbath, because one thing we can't do as Jews is use electronic devices on the Sabbath. Despite the Kindle and everything like it, we will remain one day a week the people of the book. So we are finding that to strengthen families, people are bringing back religious institutions that they got rid of maybe 20 or 50 years ago. Their kids are now going to Jewish schools and bringing the parents to synagogue, and they are devoting at least that one day a week to family and community. And I am seeing this revive all over the place, and uh, even the really driven two-income two, uh, families, and believe me, you know, our kids are that kind of driven two-income families, high aspirers. They are making sure that they dedicate 
sacred time, I mean dedicated time, to family and to community and to things like um, prayer, to things like gratitude. But, but even in secular uh, families, one of the sort of interesting parallels with the traditions is the, is the family meal, the sort mm. of, you know, breaking, the, breaking the fast together. That, that's mm. one of the things which knits families together. Totally, and that, of course, that used to be a part of what made Britain Britain until uh, the government deregulated Sunday, which, oddly enough, sadly, took place when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. I'm sure she didn't particularly want it. But um, families used to get together every Sunday and have a family meal. Today, 30 to 40% of families in Britain don't own a dining table. But they do own a television. So they they own a television and they you know, come in one after the other, take something out of the freezer, stick it in the microwave, and um, the social affairs unit, Digby Anderson used to call that cereal grazing. So I think we're seeing the family meal come back as a way of seeing the family come back. So we're at this conference, which is on the sort of security of the of the West, and obviously uh, talking about sort of external threats. I mean, do you do you feel that the sort of the threats to the West are primarily internal or primarily yes, external? Yes, a hundred percent. I wrote a book, uh, published a book in '97, called "The Politics of Hope." 40 years earlier, in 57, Isaiah Berlin had given his famous inaugural lecture as Chichely Professor of Political Thought at Oxford called Two Concepts of Liberty. And in that lecture, he had seen as the greatest threat to freedom um, the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union. And my case was that in 40 years, this is 97 now, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the end of the Cold War, the biggest threat was not totalitarianism, it was the moral vacuum at the heart of those Western democracies because freedom is, I believe, a moral achievement. I sent the book to Isaiah Berlin. He said he was I asked him to read it and he agreed. And Unfortunately, I didn't hear from him for several months, so I phoned him up at Headington Hall, which was his home, and his wife, Aline, Lady Aline, answered the phone and said, Ah, oh, Chief Rabbi, Isaiah has just been talking about, you know, Isaiah was a secular Jew, did not spend his time talking about rabbis. So I said, in what context? And she said, he's just asked whether you would officiate at his funeral. And I did my various utterances to avert the evil eye and told her not to think of such things. But clearly he knew and four days later he died and I did officiate at his funeral in Oxford. So I never heard what Isaiah thought about the politics of hope. But I stick by that proposition. I think it was a very, the most passionate statement I could make and, for, and he, for civil society. And even now with China, Islam, Russia, cyber threats or, you, or all of the sort of the, the sort of swamp of chaos around us you still feel that it's of course yeah. of course I mean Sam Huntingdon makes the case in the last chapter of his book The Clash of Civilizations of course when you write a book like that the one thing you never do is read the last chapter but do read the last chapter because in the last chapter he says the West should not seek to impose its values on the world it should be content with seeking to impose its own values on itself. And I hold that. The West is losing those values. 
And if you lack belief in yourself, then you can't function as a player on the international arena. And the world will then go to Russia or China or India or Islam. And um, okay, we have a multipolar world. That's interesting. And it seems to me that China and India and these great civilizations, which are, you know, uh, rising again from the dust, I mean, these are great civilizations. Uh, India is a civilization at least as old as the Abrahamic monotheisms. Uh, China is, is a an extraordinary civilization that led the world technologically until around the 16th or 17th century. They invented printing long before we did. Um, they were ahead of us on all sorts of things, paper, gunpowder, china, uh, porcelain, and all the rest of it. They were a great civilization. They've been only in eclipse for, for two centuries. There's no doubt that China is a civilizational force to be reckoned with, and we should be, you know, I, I, I once sat at a meeting where the speakers were um, Larry Summers, of, uh, who was Treasury Secretary as well as President of Harvard, and uh, Jim Wolfenson, head of the World Bank, and Stanley Fisher, head of the Bank of Israel. And they were discussing what, what, what would you encourage your children to do? And, I think Larry Summers said, you know, keep your faith in the dollar. And Jim Wolfenson said, teach a Mandarin. And I think he was right. China is a great civilization. We needn't feel threatened by it. All we need f feel threatened by is our own lack of faith in ourselves. And But presumably as well, our, our own reaction to the threats facing us, so that if... Um if the recent events in Manchester and London leads to a sort of a crackdown, a security crackdown, and to exactly the, to entrenching the kind of divisions you were talking about earlier, that would be... look. Britain can come through this. You know, I've just come back from Peru, um, and in Peru, there was a reign of terror, the Shining Path. Yeah, uh, in which. The death penalty was between 70 and 80,000. I mean, it makes uh, British terror, uh, you know, it put, sets it in perspective. I'm not sure how many people lost their lives in the IRA bombing campaigns in the 70s. So Britain knows how to handle these things without feeling existentially threatened. And I think resilience here is the key word. So, looking to the future, I mean, are you, are you, do you still have the, the audacity of hope, to, to paraphrase uh, Obama, who obviously stole your, stole your idea? I mean, are you, are you pessimistic or optimistic about... Uh, well, look, I always make years? a distinction, and forgive me, forgive my team for having heard this before, but there is a significant difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is the belief that things will get better. Uh, hope is the belief that if we work hard enough together we can make them better it needs no courage to be an optimist only a certain kind of naivety but it sometimes needs a great deal of courage to have hope no Jew who knows our people's history can be an optimist but no Jew worthy of the name ever gave up hope so of course I still believe in the politics of hope and the alternative which is the politics of fear a very, very bad politics. To renew hope in Britain, 
We have to renew our families, we have to renew our communities, we have to renew our localities, and we have to renew our sense of identity. As a beautifully diverse nation, a community of communities that are joined together for the common good in a culture that is part Christian, part secular, but nonetheless knows how to make generous space for people of other faiths and none. Lord Sachs, thank you very much. And you. Uh, if you like this, please subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.